0: Everyone, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and not-so-great stories of Winnipeg, Manitoba. We are here with a slightly less historic, but still important episode today, all about archives. Woohoo! I should also say I'm Sabrina, and I'm joined by our co-host, Alex. Hello. And I have a big question for you, Alex, and it is, what is an archive? Oh, no!
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's actually a more complex question than you might think. And the reason I said, oh, no, is that I once infamously completely derailed one of my grad school seminars by asking a guest lecturer that question, um, (laughs) which led to an hour long debate about um, whether an archive is a garbage can or an attic or. Yeah, but for our purposes today, we'll just define it very simply as basically just a collection of primary source material or historical records, which are intentionally being preserved in some kind of facility.
0: Okay, Um, a garbage can is what I'm hearing. Yeah,
1: yeah, because a garbage can is not intentional. So we can argue about that a different day. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Yeah, so I actually, I haven't talked about this on the show yet, I don't think, but I'm actually currently a working archivist. Um, I'm the sole archivist at like a small archive at a private institution. Um, So that means that I take care of everything in the archive and answer all the research requests and everything. Um, And so for those of you who like aren't historians or don't remember this part of the curriculum, a primary source, which is what I said archives hold, is basically a contemporary record. So Sabrina, you want to give us a few examples of those?
0: Yeah, I mean, a contemporary source in our case might be like, letters someone had written about something, or um, in my case specifically the Winnipeg Tribune articles about Ginger (laughs) Snuff. Totally. We love that digital archive. But yeah, basically sources from that particular time period you're looking at.
1: Yeah, exactly. So things like photos, slides, letters, diaries, uh, scrapbooks arguably, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, So what that means is that the material kept in an archive is almost always unique. Um, so this is the big difference between something like a library and an archive. So if I'm a librarian and someone like spills a cup of coffee on a book or just doesn't return it, um, like maybe I'm annoyed, but I'm not too worried because in most cases I can just order a replacement.
0: Oh no, not my copy of 50 Shades of Grey.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So unless it's like a rare books room, which is a different thing. Um, but as an archivist, I'm a custodian for things that can't be replaced. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, if, if something is destroyed for whatever reason, that thing is just gone for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course nothing can be kept indefinitely, you know, but my goal is for the records I keep to last ideally for hundreds of years. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, So because of that, archives often have really strict rules about how they care for materials and how they expect you to handle them. So um, Sabrina, like, do you remember the last time you physically visited an archive, what the kind of process
0: was? Yeah, um, it was, I went to the Manitoba archives for something and I was looking at like, this is weird. So we get into like, what is a secondary source? Because arguably what I was looking at wasn't quite primary sources. (laughs) It was like someone's notes on a primary source. Right. But basically i got like signed in and taken to a room and they would bring the documents to me there was no like drinks allowed in the archive. i was given yeah. a pencil and i could take notes in my own notebook but not on the documents obviously yes I was <laughs> that's given- very important do not write
1: on the documents
0: <laughs> i was not given any of the fancy little gloves but i wasn't handling anything that like old or rare
1: hmm yeah so there's often pretty kind of strict guidelines there um I find that like Manitoba's archives tend to be like a little more relaxed than in some other places, but gen- generally you'll be asked to fill out some kind of like form beforehand to say why you're coming and what you want. Um, yeah, and you'll be asked. Information in advance. Yes. Um, you'll have to leave all of your possessions outside except for um, like your phone or your camera um, and a pencil. I've even been asked to leave my notebook outside. Oh, and wow. to Use like their provided paper. Um, yeah. And so. All of that is just to prevent, you know, theft and and anything happening to the archival materials. And ideally, archives also try to maintain a stable environment for their materials. So especially in terms of things like temperature and relative humidity. Um, that's not, you know, a thrilling topic, but it is important. <laughs> what about emotional um, stability? <laughs> I mean, I suppose if the archivist like goes haywire and starts yeah. destroying things, that could be bad. <laughs>
0: No, uh, temperature control and stuff is always very important yeah, to maintain. Yeah, super important, Um, and also, like,
1: especially hard in a place like Winnipeg, because those fluctuate a lot
0: here. Yeah, anecdotally, I worked at the museum in Morris, and they have a newspaper archive in the back room, which is temperature controlled, but many of the papers predated the 1950 flood and were already, like, sort of water damaged. Oh, yeah. So, like, if it was a humid day, the papers would sort of crinkle and get worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that can definitely happen. Actually, like in my archive, the temperature jumped from 20% or the humidity rather jumped from 20% to 45% over the last oh, like week no. or so, which is not wow. great. No. Rather than the dehumidifier now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but basically, um, you have to have like kind of a good purpose-built building or a renovated building in order to preserve those archives as long as possible. Because if you don't, yeah, you'll get things like papers getting all crinkly or even moldy, um, or the opposite. They can get really brittle. Um, -hmm. you can also get pests. There are a lot of things that like to eat paper. (laughs) Yep. Um, and yeah, and if any of those things happen, those documents can be lost to us forever. So Uh, Sabrina, what, I mean, what does that matter if a document is lost forever?
0: I mean, it makes it very hard for us personally to do our jobs. It really does. (laughs) This is an issue we have run into time and time again during episode research is that things that existed once are just not in the city anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That archives just, yeah, that archival records just don't exist um, or don't exist here. And that's always really tough. And I think you know, most people are not historians. Yep. So I think for a lot of people, it's easy to kind of dismiss the value of these institutions, because the vast majority of people are not going to have to visit an archive in their
0: lifetime. Yeah, but then like the archives tell all these interesting stories about the city and things we've tried and things that we've tried and have failed or...
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I think, I think we kind of like, almost rely on historians and like, you know, filmmakers and and podcasters say, to <laughs> almost like translate the archives for yeah. us, right? Into narratives through books and films and so on. Um, and not only historians use archives, they're also used by researchers, by lawyers, genealogists. Um, they can be really important in property disputes. Oh, yes. Um, archives can also uncover injustices and historical truths. Um, also really important, we live under a system of common law, which means that in Canada, the law is based on previous judicial decisions for the most part, rather than like Mm -hmm. a single constitutional document. And where do we keep those legal records of past decisions? The archives. In archives. Yes. So good record keeping is the basis of our justice system. Um, But yeah, I think most importantly to me, what we keep in an archive determines like the story that we'll tell about ourselves in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Sabrina, what is going on with our archives? So the city of Winnipeg archives has been in sort of an unusual state for the past number of years. Yep. (laughs) I'm sure it is a surprise to some people, the city has an archive, but we do. (laughs) So actually, Winnipeg has had an archive since uh, 1874. Wow. I didn't know that so crazy they were founded when the city council appointed one of the clerks a.m brown to obtain a cupboard to contain the corporation papers (laughs) so essentially it was just like a cupboard to keep our documents and then over the years it would expand with more and more boxes going in of city histories so at which point does a cupboard become an archive is the question (laughs) when it's intentional i don't don't know anyway (laughs) without getting too far into that So essentially, the archives are kept in City Hall for a number of years, and I think, thankfully, they're not like that exciting of a city history story. There's no fires, they're kept safe during the floods, Mm -hmm. they just exist. But they inform a lot of history even throughout the early years of the city because, especially around the mid-century period, a lot of reporters are big on looking back. Oh, cool. And how the history is shaped. So um, a Tribune reporter, Lillian Gibbons, did a whole thing called "Story Stories Houses Tell, which was features on different Winnipeg homes. And she would use the archives to tell the stories of those houses. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. And then they would add in new things as time goes on. So there's stuff about like the Royal Visits, the Pan Am Games, property disputes, big events. And then come the 1970s, we're in sort of a period of city redevelopment more or less and the original city hall is torn down and there are tentative plans to move the city archives into the centennial library in 1974 this is the millennium library now oh cool yeah this just doesn't happen for some reason Mm -hmm. i don't really know why i'm sure it was some sort of like they didn't have room for it or it was too hard to build the archives in right but the millennium library does also have a local history room as well as um microfilm newspapers so you can go look at stuff there still But then in 1977, $200,000 was set aside for the conversion of the William Avenue Public Library into a proper archives facility. And they would add an extra 100,000 for this in 1978. Cool. Have you been to the Carnegie Library before, Alex? I think I have, but not in a while. I mean, it would be at least since 2013, you wouldn't have been able to get in there. (laughs) So the Carnegie Library is on William Avenue. It is this like neoclassical old library and it was built in around 1904, 1905, with funding from Andrew Carnegie. It was one of the city's like big early public libraries, hmm. so it's a big deal that it's it built. The Governor General of Canada is present at the opening ceremonies, and it is a like significant downtown library for some time. And then the new library opens up, the Millennium Library opens, and that sort of shifts traffic more towards the downtown core. Right. And It continues as a library, the Carnegie does, until um, the 1980s, and then it sort of slowly peters out. The library closed in 1995, but that was still home to the archives. Okay. And then more recently, in the, like, 2010s, they began developing it again to create a new state-of-the-art archive space, which include, like, better temperature controls, more room for programming, all of that exciting Mm -hmm. and fun stuff. And then a freak storm happens. No. part of the roof off of the building and it is flooded so all of the documents are picked up and whisked away to a temporary facility on Myrtle Street which is effectively a very small and unassuming warehouse
1: right and Sabrina surely that temporary location is no longer
0: where the archives are <laughs> you say this and yet <laughs> it has been they've been there since 2013 Jeez. more or less so They've been there for a while. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we actually sat down to talk about sort of where the archives are and why it matters that they're there with Tom Nesmith, who is a a now retired senior scholar from the Department of History in the University of Manitoba. And this has really become a big project for him to get the city archives back into a proper home. This is the thing they've been campaigning for for a number of years. I actually spoke at a panel on behalf of the archives with not with tom but tom invited me to speak in 2018 so it's been a while yeah <laughs> so we'll play that interview with you now
2: we have a and i closed the door of my study however you may hear meowing <laughs> uh, yeah you know, okay i've got a-
1: i've got Two over here as well. So we're almost bound to have some meows on the recording, I think.
3: <laughs>
2: That's right. Man, <laughs> we're setting us- ourselves that. up
1: for a perfect storm here of cat noises.
0: <laughs> I'm
2: sure that the cat is saying, I want a better facility for the city archives. It's just, you know, you have to listen carefully <laughs> yeah. for it.
0: Yeah. We need someone to like a cat whisper and a translate. Like put that. that into Google Translate and right. uh, yeah. <laughs> So I think probably the best way to start off is for you to tell us a bit about yourself, Tom.
2: Okay. Well, first of all, I I do want to thank you for inviting me to be a guest today and also to congratulate both of you on this podcast, which is still fairly new and very innovative, uh, informative and entertaining. And also uh, congratulate you for being nominated for a Manitoba Day Award by the Association Manitoba Archives. Um, for people who are listening and may not know about the Manitoba Day Awards, um, they are uh, awarded by the Association for Outstanding Use of Archives in the Creation of various kinds of historical works, such as this podcast. So congratulations.
0: Thank you. We were so excited to be nominated. It was really, really cool.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess you'll find out later on this month, who the winners are yeah. keep you on on. yeah fairly soon we're
1: up we're up against an actual documentary so we'll oh. we'll see
2: <laughs> well you have my vote but I have no vote. <laughs> well
1: it's well, the the thought who that am counts
2: yeah The um, <laughs> perennial philosophical question um when it became clear that I wasn't going to be an NHL hockey player I decided <laughs> to to do the next best thing and become an archivist. You, you wouldn't imagine how many uh, archivists are you know, failed NHL hockey players. Um, no, no, my
1: career path as well. That's no, I'm just
2: <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, yes, I, I became an archivist in 1978 at the then Public Archives of Canada, which is now Library and Archives Canada. And I've been in the world of archives for about 42 years, I guess it is. And the first 12 of those years were spent at the Public Archives, which became the National Archives. And I worked um, on both sides of the uh, the street, you might say, the private records side and the Government of Canada records side. Um, Got very interested and immersed in the world of archives and the thinking that was um, uh, percolating at that time on what archives are all about and how we should run them properly. And we should understand the work of archives and the records of archives. And um, that kind of set me up for um, the opportunity that the University of Manitoba presented in 1990 when they established the Archival Studies Master's program. And I applied to um, be the professor in the program and became the founding professor. And for the next 27 years, I taught in that program. And uh, we have well over 100 graduates now. And they, they get a master's degree in history for completing a curriculum in archival studies and uh, they are now working in archives all over Canada and a couple in other countries as well, Um, but I'm retired now and. um, um, have devoted myself to some writing and and uh, doing uh, the lobbying on behalf of the city archives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about um, so the current location of the city archives and basically what's wrong with it? What are the, the problems with the location? It would
2: be easier to say what's right with it. Yeah. <laughs> that would take maybe a nanosecond. But uh, yeah, as you well know, uh, the, the archives is in a so-called temporary location on Myrtle Street. And um, you may remember an old CBC morning show quiz that was called Do You Know Your Winnipeg? and uh, i've sometimes challenged people i've never submitted this to the cbc at the time sometimes <laughs> challenged people to look at this picture of the myrtle street archives building and, and tell me you know what is that do you know your winnipeg <laughs> what building is that and of course nobody would ever imagine that that was the city archives it's a temporary location so called mm-hmm. but uh, it's now dragging on to um, 8 years of temporary status since the disaster of 2013 that forced the evacuation of uh, the William Avenue Carnegie Library building, home of the archives. But what's wrong with um, Myrtle Street? Well, um, the main thing is the security of the records. Um, Mm. Myrtle Street is an old factory, an old warehouse. It was never intended to be an archives. And so it, it doesn't have the proper environmental controls for temperature and humidity. Uh, that archives need um, mm-hmm. it. It doesn't have workspace for preservation activities or the equipment that is needed for that. Um, so you know, in effect, the records are slowly rotting. Uh, there's no question about it. The the, the yeah. extremes of temperature changes, you know, summer, winter, and so on, uh, are the worst enemy of of archives. Now, the other big problem, of course, is that uh, It's in this isolated industrial park. Very few people would even know where Myrtle Street is or have heard of Myrtle Street. It's Mm -hmm. just not an accessible place for uh, the public. And so we would like to see a a location for the archives in a proper facility that's far more accessible. So they're the two main things. And and so public use has dropped way off as as Mm -hmm, well as a result of uh, its relocation to Myrtle Street.
0: Yeah, so you'd mentioned they've been in there as a temporary facility for about, Eight years. When did you get involved in the campaign <laughs> to like start getting it back into a proper facility?
2: Well, believe it or not, this is my second swing at the uh, can here. I was involved in the um, initial development of the city archives in the 1990s. I was on the city archives records committee, which oversees the work of the archives. There are two citizen members um, on this committee, and I happen to be one. And those are the good old days, you might say, when um, the the city made a major commitment to developing the city archives and things were going very, very well until 2013, when uh, a torrential rainstorm tore through the roof of the Carnegie Library building while it was uh, under renovation to become a proper home for the Mm -hmm. city archives. Um, And at the time, you know, 2013, 14, we, I think people like me um, simply assumed, well, the city will repair that roof and continue on with the uh renovation. And then you know a couple of years passed and nothing seemed to be happening. So um, a few of us in ice, separate from one another, um, wrote to our councillors um to try to raise this uh you know problem and bring it to their attention, but we didn't get very far. But it wasn't until um, the fall of 2018 that we decided that uh, isolated efforts were just not going to work, we began campaigning. Uh, to um, bring greater attention to the city archive situation and we wrote to the mayor uh, counselors candidates for the municipal election, which was in the fall of 2018 and then we began meeting with. Uh, first, with the mayor in, in January 2019 and then we had in-person meetings with um, councillors throughout 2019 um, and we've kept uh, badgering them ever since. Uh, we've had a couple of meetings uh, where we made presentations to uh, councillors uh, in person at uh, formal council committee meetings and now we're looking forward to um, a public consultation which we expect to be held in June. Uh, we think a formal announcement will be coming up fairly soon and so the public will have a chance to weigh in on the on the issue of the archives and and uh, indicate what kind of archives they would like to see. So we think we're making progress, but it's been awfully slow.
1: Um, Yeah. So speaking of it being slow, do you have any thoughts on why the city has kind of dragged their heels so much on this?
2: Well, um, it's hard to know, really. Um, I think you'd have to ask the city to be Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest about that. I think the part of the problem is that uh, archives tend to fly under the radar, as as you both know. Mm-hmm. They're not as visible as our other major cultural institutions, um, like the Manitoba Museum or the Winnipeg Art Gallery, or um, the uh, Millennium Library, um, or LaVert or the Canadian Human Rights Museum. These institutions tend to be far more visible because. Like people go to them in large numbers and uh, see things that are on exhibit or borrow books uh, and so on. Um, And not as many people go to an archives, but I don't think many people understand how archives nevertheless suffuse so much else of what's going on, even though fewer people use them, the impact of that use is quite widespread. And so uh, when it comes to uh, museums and their exhibits, Often museum curators will uh, use archives to try to explain or understand for themselves and then to explain to their, uh, their, their visitors what these objects are about. When it comes to historic site development, like Upper Fort Erie, historical research is being done in archives to help people understand what, what that's all about. And the same with, with artworks and uh, of course, the books and other publications in libraries. Many of them draw upon archives uh, in order to um, prepare those books uh, that we use in, uh, we borrow from libraries, and yet people may not necessarily understand that that plumbing underneath all of that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's archival plumbing, that infrastructure that's beneath the surface of all of that, and, and perhaps it's not an accident that we often talk about archives being, you know, buried. <laughs> uh, or something unearthed from archives, um, because there's a sense that it's somehow buried down there and, and hard to see invisible. So I think that's fundamentally the problem. And undoubtedly, there are other reasons the city might have um, for not moving as quickly on this, but uh, um, I I I'd prefer that you ask the city about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah fair enough. You had mentioned earlier too, that there were other people sort of campaigning with you. Do you wanna talk a bit about who else is sort of involved in the push to get the archives back in a better home?
2: Sure. Um, Of course, the Association for Manitoba Archives is heavily involved in this. Um, On our kind of coordinating committee, we have um, Michel Lagasse, who is the chair of the Société d'Estaure de Saint-Boniface, which runs the Centre du Patrimoine archives, which you're familiar with, I'm sure. We have a a couple of other archivists, uh, Greg Bach and Shelley Sweeney, um, and we have Jim Blanchard. Uh, You're probably familiar with Jim, and I think Jim is fairly familiar to uh, Winnipeggers, um, and because he's published a number of books on Winnipeg history. So we have. and a historian like Jim and I like to call Jim the Pierre Burton of uh, of Winnipeg because he writes the kinds of books that Pierre Burton might have written about <laughs> Winnipeg um, and he's drawn on the city archives quite heavily and it's interesting that one of the uh, the, the previous uh, city archivists Jody, Bal- Jody Baltessen wrote an introduction to one of his books um, but beyond that there are others who um, are involved, uh, individuals and associations. Um, uh, Back in December of 2019, we developed uh, a letter, uh, kind of a petition to the mayor and councillors. And we had about 100 signatures on the letter of individuals and individuals who represent associations like the Manitoba Historical Society and Manitoba Genealogical Society and Manitoba Museums Association. Um, And some prominent individuals that you're probably familiar with, Essel Jones, Adele Perry, uh, who are historians and have used the archives, city archives, Um, and Danny Schur, uh, which uh, again, people in Winnipeg will probably be familiar with with Danny Schur, and here's a a classic example of the kind of use of archives that may not be obvious to people but uh, Danny sure did use the city archives and other archives to prepare the musical uh, strike and now it's coming out as a film called Mm -hmm. stand and people will watch that film and enjoy the uh, the, uh, experience Um, but unless they're watching very carefully at the end of that film for the credits um, they might miss that Uh, a lot of that work was dependent upon archives Um, so I think we have a a broad base Mm -hmm of of people uh, vanda flurry green and uh, jesse green for example are, are both indigenous filmmakers um are other supporters of the archives and spoke to the city council as as you know so we've got a broad base i think we're, we're we're trying to broaden it out and uh we're looking forward to seeing a number of these people at the public consultation when it comes up we expect in general and we have you too. i forgot yeah. <laughs> How can I forget that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I was going to ask why you think our archives need a better facility, but I kind of feel that you've you've answered that uh, pretty pretty well here. I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to say to speak to that?
2: Um, well, I, I think I think I've tried to answer it. Yes, um, but there are. Uh, it's important, I think, also to recognize that uh, the archives plays an important role in local democracy um we often emphasize the cultural and historical roles of archives and and so we should but the records of the uh, municipal government are there to help us as citizens to understand what's going on in our government um to critique it to hold counselors and and officials to account um but it's also there to protect them too it's it's not about always looking for fault but it enables the city to protect itself against false claims um, and uh, as well as to carry out its responsibilities. But the thing that I think excites most of us and it offers the greatest promise is this wider use of archives. And in the last 20 or 30 years or so, there's been a tremendous expansion and diversification of archives, uh, uses of archives. Um, yes, there's the conventional and familiar academic work that uh, continues and is very important but archives are now being used in a host of other areas of, of uh, activity in society um, from uh, plays and novels, dance, television, um, uh, literary works, artistic works, music um, like Danny Schuer and his films and his music, um, uh, which often get turned into television programs and so on and so on. The genealogy of course is now booming. There's a, a wide impact of archives and, and this impact tells our story as a city, both the things we've achieved and the things that uh, were, and where we've fallen short. Um, and so it's important, I think, for our community to understand itself to understand what we've done well and where we need to improve, and particularly with the Indigenous issues these days. Uh, And filmmakers like uh, Jesse Green and Vanda Fleury Green uh, have used the City Archives to um, make films uh, about Shoal Lake, for example, and the issues that uh, have arisen out of that and are important for us to know about as, as the citizens of Winnipeg. And so it's in those areas that I think we could see the great benefits of the archives. If we can get a proper facility, which allows the archives, which has a fantastic staff, just raring to go to do these things, and is already trying to do some of them. But uh, if we had a proper facility for them to be able to carry out this work, wow. uh, The impact would be something, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. In um, an ideal world, where would you like to see the archives, if we could put them anywhere?
2: Oh, boy. Well, that's a tough (laughs) question. i I think in the core area first of all uh because that's where it would be most accessible to all parts Mm -hmm. of the city but i'm going to duck that one a little bit because it is a (laughs) bit it's a bit of a hot potato (laughs) Um, (laughs) because it's it's a question now as to where the archives will go Mm -hmm. Uh, it of course was in the um, Carnegie Library Building at 380 William, but the city uh, and the city has prepared a an architectural consultant's report on what, what it would take to put through 380 William back into operation as the home of the city archives. But it's also considering other options too. But they haven't told us what options it is considering. And so, at the public consultation, um, we we expect to find out what these other options are. So perhaps I'll defer judgment if that's the right way of putting it (laughs) until we see some of these other options. Um, But I I think I would like to say that uh, I'd like to see a certain kind of archives uh, wherever it may be located. that of course is the kind of community archives that I've been describing, um, that's open to all from scholars to school kids, an archives that has a classroom in it where students can come and learn about the city and its history. Uh, where there's room for exhibitions of archival records, maybe a permanent exhibition about the history of Winnipeg, where there's a community room where conferences could be held, local historical societies, other uh, interested groups who could uh, come to hear talks Mm -hmm. um, and do all sorts of interesting things. uh, Somewhere accessible, uh, of course. Um, Digital, uh, it's very important these days, of course, that this, this archives be wired Correctly, so that we have access to born digital records. We have even talked about that, and that is so crucial to the future of archives. And of course, uh, access to digital materials that are used to find the these the materials in the archives and for outreach purposes as well. But an archives that is is a that is responsible for the city's administrative records, to be sure, but also um, also acquires records created by private individuals, personal archives, and institutions that are non-governmental, so that we get the broadest understanding of our city and its past. Um, The City Archives holds a huge portion of what we know about ourselves, about the information we create about ourselves through the the city government. This is really, really valuable in an information society, in a knowledge economy, you might say. Um, And so, making sure that we have that accessible to us is crucial to the future of the city, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Did you, did you have anything else, Sabrina? No, that was all of our questions. That was fantastic. Thank you so much.
2: Well, you're very welcome. It's been a delight and I really am honored to be uh, invited to be a guest on your podcast and I wish you the very best with <laughs> your you. podcast and for Manitoba day awards.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Tom. Okay. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Tom is, Tom is so great um he's been working on this so hard <laughs> I know <laughs> and for
0: so long I don't know how he has the patience no it seems like a lot of work he's also he's just so nice it's always so fun to talk to him <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and yeah, what was Tom, your big- yeah sorry go ahead no, what was your big takeaway from all of
1: that I think what I the point that I really like that Tom makes is that um archives can kind of fly under the radar compared to, like, public institutions, like museums and Mm -hmm. such, but that they have, like, a really widespread impact. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked his metaphor that it's kind of like the plumbing, right? Yeah. Um, And I think he came up with some really good examples there that I hadn't listed earlier, things like museum curators and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, so that we do all, even non-historians, enjoy the benefits of archives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I really like is his point about archives playing a role in local democracy. I think that's really an important thing to keep in mind.
0: I think so too, yeah. I know we Yeah, talked how about, about you? Uh, I think when he was talking about like the archives as a public space where people could like go and find out new things or tell those stories about like individuals. This is the thing we had to cut out of the interview because unfortunately Right now, my recording schedule seems to correlate with my younger sister's schedule for calling her friend and watching Smallville. So our (laughs) internet always gets bad at the exact same time. So small town internet can only do Smallville or Zoom, not both. (laughs) Both is asking way too much. So... Tom was telling a story about a number of documentaries about, like, the flood and the royal visit and construction workers and things just about the everyday lives of Winnipegers over the years and how, like, when they uh, showed that at Cinematech, lots of people turned up. Like, there is an interest, I think, in public stories, and it's worth engaging and interacting with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, like, the, the movement in, like, archives right now and in museums and other heritage sites is to make them more accessible, ideally. Yeah. And we've
0: fundamentally done the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, Have you actually ever been to the city archives, Alex? I haven't. No. I went once. (laughs) I was working downtown. I had to bus there. It took 40 minutes. Oh my God. And like the reading room is also the lobby. Oh, okay. So you go in, you sign in, you're shown to a desk in the same room. So that also means
1: there's essentially no security, right?
0: No, but, like, the door is locked. You have to get access to go in, I guess. But, like, also, there's no, like, real label. You don't know that building is the archives unless you're looking for it.
1: Right. I guess that's what Tom was saying about the, like, showing
0: people a picture and being like, what is this building? (laughs) Yeah, there's no way to know. Also, like, I bust there. If you're driving, it's hard to find parking. And then it's just sort of, like, inefficient and strange for an archive to be so out of the way and so hard to use.
1: Yeah, I was looking actually earlier on a map of just like, where is Myrtle Avenue? And I don't even know if I can give a landmark of like, this is what it's near. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really near anything. No, it's by like, Lucky's supermarket, I think. Yeah. That's that's all, all I can think of.
0: Yeah. So like, it's sort of the opposite of an accessible archive. Yeah. Which is a and shame so, because like, every time yeah. I've had to email the city archives, Tremendously helpful archivists who I'm sure would kill for something more to do and like more people interact with. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no. So even just like the kind of state of the building aside, which sounds really awful, it's just like not really usable right now for a lot of people.
0: So, like, we're not the only ones, I think, to recognize that the archives being this location is a problem because Tom and many others, as he mentioned, have been involved for this for years now. And he also mentioned um, Vanda Flurry Green and Jesse Green, who are Indigenous filmmakers who own Strongfront Front TV, which makes a number of very fun and like interesting documentaries about Indigenous history in Manitoba and across Canada. We've mm-hmm. recently gotten very into watching their documentaries. <laughs> But we also recently sat down with them to talk about how they use the archives and the role archives are playing in decolonization efforts across Canada. So here's that interview. Hello. 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 How are you?
3: There we go. Hi. Very good.
0: (laughs) All right. So uh, thank you both for joining us. Can you maybe start by just telling us who you are and what you guys do?
3: I'm Jesse Greed. I'm owner of Strongford TV. it's a local indigenous media production company that started back in 1996 um we are committed to sharing the voices of first nations and miti people through the lens of resiliency and uh, the reason we started Strongfront was uh, because in the 90s it was in the early 90s it was really expensive to get into video production and then it kind of became more accessible with like the emergence of mini dv and these kind of smaller mm-hmm. formats and uh, and final cut pro like on the back no so, suddenly it was you know you went from these quarter million dollar you know camera and edit systems to kind of like okay now I can rent it for 75 dollars a day and buy a mac and have final cut pro so that's kind of how strunkman started was bringing kind of video production and media to to uh to the grassroots communities and also at the same time you know, the emergence of APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network started the same mm-hmm. year, strong friend did and, uh, and same with the, the Manitoba First Nation Education Resource Center, which is one of our biggest clients. Um, you know, they started the same year. So it was kind of like a synergy, a movement. A movement <laughs> of, of time, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it was it was kind of a, a good time to start. Yeah.
4: And uh, my name is Banda Fleury Green. I joined the Strong Front team about eight years ago, and now I'm a director, writer, researcher, and archival producer. Uh, From working in radio museums and education, I brought a skill set centered on object and record literacy, which is how material items and documents tell stories. And it's very well-suited to video production, uh, blended with Indigenous voices, community, and cultural narratives. So much more of the story is really brought to life on screen. And so that's very much uh, become our, our forte of, of what we do at, at Strong Front.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, you guys have produced a number of like local and I guess national sort of documentaries then, which Alex and I have seen a few of. Mm-hmm. If you wanna yeah. name drop some of them so people know where to look <laughs> for more.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Town Muddy Water is streaming on, uh, if you Google it, it's streaming off, off of Vimeo. Uh, Urban Eclipse is not streaming yet because it's still in the film festival circuit uh where we've got accepted into Waterdocs um later this year I mean it was supposed to be in the summer and now it's in November we'll see when it actually happens but it's uh, it's out of Toronto uh Waterdocs
4: it'll be a virtual a virtual experience mm. as well yeah
3: yeah and um that's our two kind of Claims to Fame documentaries, you guys, you guys had mentioned our baseball documentary, yeah, that we did with the late uh, Don Marks. Um, oh, geez, what's the name of the again? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Behind,
3: Behind an Account. <laughs> yes, sorry, <laughs> my mind. Okay, yes. you you seen uh, Behind an Account? That was uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a film we did with the late uh, Don Marks. So it was one of his his babies. He was he was kind of he was on that baseball <laughs> team. And he God. knew all guys and uh, yeah it was very interesting and very entertaining and you know I, I almost uh, choked up in, a, in one spot in that <laughs> film like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminded oh. me of my childhood you know know that, that all those guys in the north end area. Yeah. And that's a few of our our big documentaries bigger
4: ones yeah and for a lot of our clients um, most of the work that we do is for indigenous organizations indigenous people or organizations working to benefit the indigenous community and uh, so a lot of our work the 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 stories that we do tell for our clients they become mini documentaries in themselves and you can find a lot of our work online on our strongfront website there's um, a vast array of showcasing much of our our work there. Mm -hmm.
1: Amazing, yeah. Uh, You guys tell some some really neat uh, Manitoba stories. You were talking about um, Brown Town Muddy Water, which I was saying I I actually just watched today. Um, Yeah, which is a really neat film about kind of indigenous community and music and resistance in downtown Winnipeg back in the 60s and 70s, Um, which by the way, is a history I have to admit I didn't know about at all. So super cool to learn about. so i definitely saw a lot of kind of archival photos in there can you tell us maybe a little about how you use the archives in your work
4: absolutely uh, you know archives are very much a part of our institutional identity um you know like you pointed out they, they do bring a deeper meaning to our films uh, through our unique what we call story work approach and that's really you know drawing on different resources like the photographs the maps the textual documents old audio and video recordings, posters and unique ephemeral pieces to augment the stories and topics um, that we are showcasing on screen. And um, you know, through video, through that that medium, we can make all of that come to life on screen.
3: Yeah, our work covers a broad range of topics like uh, language, healthcare, land-based knowledge like medicines and hunting, entertainment, of course um and archives plays a starting role in all of it and and i think it also brings a lot of value to our productions like um you know like brown town for example is uh, they love it at the university of winnipeg and you'll be able to get requests from other universities and in, in across the country for them to watch it and they want to you know if they can screen it in their
2: mm-hmm. in their
3: classes so you know it's definitely has a has a wide wide um, interest, you know, not just for entertainment purposes, but educational and,
4: and and both within and outside of the Indigenous uh, community, I would say a lot of the work that we we do through our our documentary storytelling is to be accessible to everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. Try really Mm -hmm. hard to, to tell the stories from different perspectives, and to to make that knowledge and that story so that it's, it's accessible to all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think
0: they're definitely like valuable perspectives and voices that we maybe don't see in more like as I, was, I was gonna say traditional that's not the word I'm looking for but like older documentaries about Winnipeg and about Canada, it's definitely nice to have a new voice and a new perspective and I think a new way to use archival records. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about what role you think the archives play in uh, decolonization.
4: Absolutely, Um, you know archives are definitely touchstones for for memory and identity and they can definitely be tools of empowerment, and I think um, that came across really well in in Urban Eclipse how um, you know much of it was from point of view from from Jesse's perspective, and also for me, you know, speaking from my own experience as an Indigenous woman. Um, it's definitely a, you know, a very powerful experience and you really do feel that emotional impact when you're engaging with the, the people in the stories of the past who are your ancestors or, you know, on your ancestral um, homelands and um, And in addition to that, you know, it, it takes time to sift through the records and so does synthesizing it with all of the information and the other resources, but what is so unique about archives is that they often reveal results. And um, they're, they're evidence-based too. And so they can support an inquiry that you're doing or even a hunch. And yeah. so I think when you strategically, they, they really inform how today in the present, we can braid our truths and how we, we shape that truth. And, um, you know, for Indigenous people, it's it's really important because our stories aren't kept alive, you know, in a vault. It's how they're remembered and how they're shared in our family and our community circles. So the most important part is, is weaving it together with the, the oral history and bringing those two worlds together.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think your, your documentaries are a really cool way of kind of weaving together those different kinds of history, hey?
4: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> Definitely. And, um, you know,
3: to build to build on that, so yeah, we see the next phase of our work, and the future of strong in, in developing our existing digital repository, which dates back to 1996. Uh, we have 7,000 hours of tapes and 20 years wow. later, you know, footage from most Indigenous communities throughout Manitoba. Um, it's important that this knowledge is made accessible to the communities and uh, and that that to me is decolonization.
4: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, in terms of producing archives, like we when a lot of times, you know, the, and I'm sure I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but you know, <laughs> when people talk about talk about or think about archives, they think of, you know, the past and and what we've tried to do or what we're doing right now as an indigenous organization is also thinking about how we're producing archives in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we're, we're always kind of thinking about our, our information management and, you know, respecting the principles of OCAP, which is ownership, control, access, and possession, and how we can take, you know, the content that we have from our strongfront collection and what we can do with that to make that benefit uh, Indigenous people in the community in the future.
1: Yeah, so I I actually, my day job is in an archive. And so I think I, I know firsthand just how sort of inaccessible they can be. And so that's definitely something where there's uh, a long way to go on that for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I mean, to be more accessible, archives need to be, you know, funded and they need to be open. And yeah,
4: definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've got a couple of irons in the fire with some grant programs and you know we're we're ever hopeful that we can find a way to <laughs> to build that up, and I mean we understand it. It it, it took twenty years to to build the archive, so now it's it's going to take some time to to develop it. But we definitely see that as as the future of Strong Front and some of our next steps, aside from producing more wonderful documentaries. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: Uh, yeah, and and
1: just for fun, what is your favorite thing that you've discovered at the archives?
3: Oh, okay, yes. We um, <laughs> <I> mean... <laughs> was scrolling to <laughs> There
4: we
3: are. Okay, so my favorite things, my favorite thing at the archives was the uh, the Greater Winnipeg Water District Ledgers and Boxes, you know, I didn't actually think we would be hands on with them, you know, with the little white gloves, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> the originals, you know, and it was uh, somebody way back then, like, uh, created all these gigantic scrapbooks and like saved every clipping about the uh, the water you know show like water and the aqueduct and the, every every piece of scrap and the note that uh, was ever published in the, the papers oh wow yeah and it did, the number like more than one it was like two or three gigantic scrapbooks oh she's
1: it's a lost art a eh? scrapbooking yeah <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah it was so neat that was like the coolest stuff in that somebody actually took the time to describe the content and you know put these things together it was that was yeah every piece was dated and
0: oh wow that's that's such a helpful resource yeah
3: yeah I mean I took like a million photos from that that scrapbook and you know some of it made it into the doc not all of it of course but um, (laughs) the relevant stuff and yeah it was it was definitely something to me was kind of like okay this is archives this Mm -hmm. is to me, it was so, you know, just scrapbooking, right? Like yeah. take it out mm-hmm. glue it, and mm-hmm. you know, I just was thought in my mind, not being an archivist or more of an artiste myself, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. This is, it's not, uh, you know,
4: it's not some abstract <laughs> event that, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and I think that speaks to that tremendously powerful experience of actually getting to touch and be really hands on with these kind of things. And I mean, you know, it's great that there's so many archives that are, you know, made digital and made available online. And that's really great, but also being able to, to go in and, and see them and feel them and touch them is a completely um, um, also wonderful experience. Um, Which I know for me, um, that kind of informed my um, favorite thing about the archives, I guess it was rediscovering our our daughter's name. So our our middle daughter, Myla, she's named um, Antoinette, and that's in honor of Mary Rose Antoinette Lajmodier, who we are a descent Mm -hmm. of. Yeah, and so she was the daughter of Josette, an Indigenous woman who was one of the original Red River Mothers of Resistance, to borrow the awesome title from Norma Hall's (laughs) website. And um, Antoinette's father was John Baptist Lajemodier, who many people are familiar with through the local street name, and mm-hmm. also through his second marriage to a French woman from Quebec. And so I was able to learn so much about Antoinette and Josette at the Provincial Archives of Manitoba, the Sinclair genealogies, the card files on hand, and all of the supporting literature. And you know, this speaks to there's there's often a dark side to what to what you find in the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, Indigenous perspective, mm-hmm. because unfortunately for Antoinette's mom, Josette, there's some really nasty stories about her that have been recycled in the fur trade literature about poisoning and, and this. Mm-hmm. So, for me, part of naming our daughter um, Antoinette, it's about restoring the women's, their humanity, and remembering their stories in a, in a different way. And so, you know, it's important that we reclaim that past and and it's like a personal contribution to dismantling Canada's narratives, the colonial narratives that really mm-hmm. ignore or devalue Indigenous women's life experiences. So I, I guess we we use the archives as a naming convention for our children. <laughs> I just, I I hope they grow up to be inspired by these Indigenous women and and their voices and the stories that we, the other stories that we can remember.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Sabrina, did you have anything else? No, that was basically the gist of our questions. So thanks so much. This was actually, this was really great. It was so fun to talk to you guys. Alex and I have been looking forward to this for a while. (laughs)
4: <laughs> oh, and you guys got everything you needed? <laughs> I think so. Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there anything else that you want to um tell us or, or want to say about um the archives or are their importance or
3: kind of uh yeah, how important it is for telling indigenous stories. Oh, great. Yeah. Um uh, let's see here. Yeah. So uh in our research, let's <clears throat> see here. I mean, how do I start? <laughs> I feel archives are important in telling Indigenous stories. Because, for example, in the um, in our research for Urban Eclipse, I was surprised to find out how much information was documented in the Winnipeg real estate news. Um, water was so important to Winnipeg for, for more reasons than just access to clean drinking water. I mean, water to a city is everything. It's economy, it's infrastructure, it's real estate. And it, to me, it was in, so interesting to find out how Shoal Lake was foundational in every aspect of Winnipeg's development. Yet it took a 100 years for that story to emerge loud enough so that people in politics would mobilize for change and recognition um, that their water actually came from, and for people to know and realize and learn that their water came from, you know, a First Nation in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's a Mental, sorry. But <laughs> A First Nation, you know, 100, you know, 100 miles away.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's not a well-known thing, you know, hopefully now it is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even remember when I was in school, um, we were told that our water came from Shoal Lake, but we learned about kind of the science of it, that, you know, this is how it's pumped. And this is the issues with like zebra mussels. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't, um, we didn't learn about that kind of history of it.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in Winnipeg real estate news, they talked about how amazing of a feat this aqueduct was and stuff.
0: But mm-hmm.
3: you know, like, still a little recognition of of the community where it came from. You know, it's like,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and I mean, and at least they now they got a road, and you know, they get a new water treatment plant being built and and a new school. But you know, when we when we were filming this documentary back in twenty fifteen, if you went to the community, it's just the condition of the, the living conditions and you know mm-hmm. it, it's an island so there's no way nowhere to take the garbage there's no like garbage there's a garbage dump but it's like right on the island you know it's not it doesn't right. get carried away to another to a garbage dump in Kenora or in Winnipeg it's like just dumped in the bush basically or it was now it's now they're able to truck it out and you know and, and same with the the raw sewage it was just dumped on the island you know prior to mm-hmm. To the road being built so it's just uh just hard to believe that you know how winnipeg um benefited so much so greatly from from the water and, and the community was just left in in shambles you
4: know mm-hmm. yeah. i think it it speaks to how much of that story was left out of winnipeg's story for so many years mm-hmm. you know almost 100 years exactly how you know winnipeg's narrative didn't include the 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 dirty truth. The dirty truth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the only thing that I would add, um, there is a question about how archives are important in telling Indigenous stories. And Mm -hmm. just to add to that, I would say, you know. The level of interpretation that has to happen in in the story work piece of that I think it's it's really Mm -hmm. important, Um, you know when you have indigenous people interpreting the material and the information, a lot of times you'll you'll see the continuity of our ancestral values uh, coming through in those interpretations like kinship, for example. Um, I know in one of my projects about Métis experiences at residential schools, I weave together my family oral history with a lot of the, the vital statistics records, the census records, the archives from the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, and um, I've used that to really uh, support my position that our kinship ties, you know, they're they're rooted in resiliency and they run deeper than a lot of the injustice that um, that we we use the archives to to support that evidence and that really frames the the story work of, of bringing the archives together with the oral history wonderful yeah, yeah. it's a
0: pleasure to get together and talk and hopefully we can do this again sometime soon
4: yes yeah. hopefully in person one of these that days. Would be so,
0: nice.
1: <laughs> so to me i think what that interview really speaks to is that we need to be preserving materials for um like when we're ready and able to tell these stories and also to listen to them yeah if that makes sense like those shoal lake materials that jesse talked about um that he found those have probably been in the archive for a long time oh yeah but but like jesse said like filmmaking was far less accessible before iphones and final cut pro existed Um, And I think also realistically like Winnipeggers on the whole would have been a lot less open to hearing that story not that long ago.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine trying to tell that in like the early 90s and being with yeah, significant pushback.
1: Exactly. So I'm imagining like, if the archives had say flooded in the 90s, like, do we get this cool Shoal Lake documentary? Like, maybe we still have, you know, oral histories and such. Mm -hmm. But but I don't know, like, I think, without getting like kind of too radical lefty here. I think like <laughs> if you do want to tell stories of colonization, um, you kind of need those records of colonial
0: governments, right? Yeah. So all of this being said, there's a lot of people currently trying to get the city archives into a better home. And it seems like finally after pushing and pushing We're actually making some progress on this because there's actually something you can do now if you decide you would like to come help the archives.
1: Yeah, we uh, we just got an email as uh, just kind of the day we're recording here.
0: But like I would encourage you to look at. What the city is doing, and take part in the public survey. If you know you enjoy your podcast, or have ever read a book by Jim Blanchard, or watched the Stand movie, or enjoyed any sort of like local history content anywhere, like the museum, or like if you read a plaque downtown that you thought was neat, all of that comes from here, right? Yeah, absolutely. So much of our environment comes from the archives.
1: Yeah, no, hundred percent. And and you know what I'd encourage people to do is if people have listened to our Ginger Snooks episode. Like, to be Snooks-like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Talk to your city councilor. Yes, go yell at city council, but maybe, but maybe actually, don't yell. Just like... There's actually probably more constructive things you could do right now, though, because they're having, um, there's two virtual workshops taking place about the city archives, one on June 16th and one on June 17th. The one on June 16th is during the afternoon, and the June 17th one is in the evening. They're both three hours long, so... If you don't have the time to sit for a three-hour discussion on the archives, you can just take the survey. They also have available. So we'll be posting the links to all of that stuff on our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. But before you go and jump into a survey with no knowledge of what's going on, we're going to run you through what the city is talking about doing with the archives, because they have announced some tentative options for plans. So like Tom had said, they talked to a number of stakeholders, included the Archives Association, the Winnipeg Foundation, students at the University of Winnipeg, and Heritage Winnipeg. So a number of different people sort of played a role in talking about what could happen here and what should happen here and what the priorities for the archives are going to be in the future. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of things that have been identified including a public accessible space, proper like storage and like controls for the archives. But another big thing is just making sure people can use them and making sure they're accessible, that there's room to grow the collection, to focus more on reconciliation and just histories in the area. But all of that has to come with a new building, Mm -hmm. one way or another. So they've planned four options, or five technically. Right, one's
1: like 2A, 2B.
0: Yeah. So the two that they've identified as the most viable are to construct a brand new building for the archives that will last for up to 20 years or to move back into to the Carnegie Library at 380 William Avenue. And
1: just to clarify, when you say it will last for 20 years, the building will last longer than that. They're just planning for how fast <laughs> yeah. the archives will grow.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So this can hold probably about 20 more years of collecting before they might have to consider something like an expansion. Mm-hmm. There are a number of pros and cons of all of this stuff. Obviously, if you're looking at like a new high-tech archive, a new build, Mm -hmm. is probably the best idea, but it's also costly and there's no identified site in mind for where that's going to go.
1: Yeah, so I guess that could potentially take more time as well, which is more time that the archives are in a leaky warehouse.
0: And additionally, all of the stakeholders they spoke to identified a need for the archives to be central, Mm -hmm. so to be close to downtown, which is a tough place to find land these days. So there's some pretty good pros and cons for a new building, but there's also a pretty strong case for moving back to 380 William Avenue mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. So 380 William Avenue is part is already built for public usage in one way. So there's like room for public spaces. It was a public library for how many years? Right. There would still need to be, say, renovations and expansion done to meet current needs but it's also one of the cheapest options available not to say that like the cheapest option here is the best one i don't think that's yeah. the case at all but for contrast the pricing that the city has laid out is that a new building is going to cost 22.3 million whereas moving back to 380 william is 13.3 million
1: right and you had you had made a really good point too that moving back could be the greener option as well
0: yeah so if we're looking at say environmental sustainability the greenest building is the one that is already there Mm-hmm. This is the uh, frequent phrase in any heritage meeting you may ever go to, <laughs> <laughs> but essentially that like the you're going to like sort of cause less climate change damage by using what already exists. You're not generating yeah. new waste. You're not manufacturing as many new materials. It yeah, makes you're not sense. having to tear
1: down something that's already there.
0: Yeah, and more importantly, to tear down something that is like for the most part structurally fine. Right. It's not like the building is completely decrepit and has to go.
1: Yeah, like it it, it definitely needs some pretty substantial renovations from what I've heard to be, you know, sort of, you know, ready for the archives in a way that we would want it to be.
0: Yeah. But, But,
1: yeah, still still a good deal cheaper than a new build.
0: Yeah, totally. And I mean, obviously, I'm not an archivist, so I will happily heed to whatever the archivists decide they need. Yeah. But it seems like there is sort of a solid plan in place and some good ideas going around. So it'll be exciting to see where this goes next. So with all of that, we'll post all of the like additional materials that the city posted on our website as well. So you can check out the studies and reports and decide for yourself if you want to take the time to read through all of that. So if you do want to get involved, remember the survey is available from May 25th until July 5th, 2021. The workshops are June 16th and June 17th. All that information will be on onegreathistory.wordpress.com. So check it out there. Get involved. And once it is safe to do so, why not go visit the archives? Yeah, please. Go take a peek. Find something fun and new that we haven't seen before. It's always a great time. And then send it to us. (laughs) Yes. We'd love that. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our sort of deeper dive into what an archive is and why the city archives matter. And if you want to see more historical content or anything like that, feel free to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History, and we are on Twitter at the number One Great History. One Great History is also now on Patreon. If you'd like to take some time and give us between three to five dollars to help support streaming costs and buying research materials, we'd really appreciate it. You get exciting stuff like a monthly Ginger Smokes news clipping, as well as fun bonus episodes about miscellaneous portions of Winnipeg history we can't fit into normal episodes you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash one great history thanks for listening